This is a setup, man. Come on. Welcome to the Mouthpiece, year one, episode 14. Today, we're going to talk about my poker after dark experience last week, along with my upcoming poker after dark next week. We're also going to have an amazing interview with Sean Deeb. That's right. We're going to talk about his World Series of Poker, how he's chasing his an unprecedented second consecutive WSOP Player of the Year, along with your phone calls and lots more here on The Mouthpiece. Okay, welcome to The Mouthpiece. Um, interesting week. Uh Last uh, Monday, Tuesday, I played Poker After Dark. Uh, I thought I played A+. Um, If any of you out there didn't see last week's episode, it was called the uh, WSOP Hangover episode on Poker Go. Um, I really liked the way I played. I got really unlucky early, got stuck. Um, I lost an 11,000 chip pot. I got all in pre-flop with queens versus ace-queen of um, the um, gentleman that won the main event, uh, Hussein. We'll just call him Hussein. I think it's Hussein Ensign or Hussein. I don't want to get his first name wrong, but I know his last name is Ensign. And a very nice man from Germany, super Nice man. Right. Really quick. Um, it'll, I'll, I'll fix that totally in the editing. Just say Mr. Ensign. Mr. Ensign. Just say it once okay. clean and I can throw it. Okay. Uh, uh, so I lost an 11K pot to Mr. Ensign. Um, and then uh, I also got myself down a little bit in a interesting hand where Daniel went crazy on Twitter that it was the worst fold ever and blah, 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 blah. But uh, to me, it was uh, one of my best folds ever uh, where um, the dynamic came up where Brandon Cantu was like raising every hand like normal and uh, Dario um, is three-betting him and if Dario's, Dario's not three-betting him, him uh, Matt Berkey was three betting him. So, um, I, uh, he gets three bet for about the 20th time. And I had ace queen in the big blind and decided to four bet this hand because of the dynamic of the Brandon Cantu raising my blind, uh, which he does, does 99% of the time. And then, the re-raise that he, they've done on Brandon every time. And then I four-bet it to 2,600. Um, my image was extremely good at the table, very tight. And Cantu uh, folded. And then Dario five-bets me all in. I have 3,100 left. Now, when... Dario knows when I four-bet it. And I asked him straight out when I four-bet it and he five-bet me all in. I go, Dario, what do you what do you think I have here? 
And he looks me dead in the eye with a smile and says, ace, queen, minimum. And then kind of smirked and smiled at me. And when he says that, uh, when he says that, that's basically telling me uh, that he has ace, king, aces are kings. I mean, there was not a doubt in my mind that he had ace, king, aces, or kings. Now, Daniel was trying to tell me, oh, he'd have done the same thing with tens or jacks. I go, no, he wouldn't have. And as a live player, uh, there's not a doubt in my mind when Dario had 1,000 invested in the pot that he's never five-bet shipping tens or jacks against my range and my um, my table presence. So I knew it was ace, king, aces, or kings. So I folded it when he looked me in the eye and said that, and then he showed me ace, king. Now, granted, was I getting almost three to one to call? Yes. So there's 2,600. Plus 2,600 is 5,200. Plus Brandon's 300 is 5,500. Plus the ante and the small blind is $5,325. Now, if when he puts me all in, that's another 3,000. So there's not, you got to count his money in the pot. So there's 8,400 in the pot. I have to put 3,000 in. Now, to win eighty four hundred, uh, which is not quite three to one on my money. Okay, if it was three thousand one hundred to win ninety three hundred, exactly three to one, I still would have folded. Okay, now people say, "Well, how do you do it? You're getting the exact correct math." Well, the bottom line is, is what if he has aces? It's one of the three. Now I'm a lot more than three to one dog. And I know it was one of the three. And I could find a better spot. I could fold there and find a better spot, which I end up doing. I end up folding. Uh, and I was really focused. So for me to make that fold told me that I'm very focused. And like I said, Dario showed me ace kingy. And even if he showed me ace king, it was still... 3100 to get back to win 8400 So it wasn't 3 to 1 on the money. As much as Daniel was texting that I was 28% in the hand, and I wasn't. So with that in mind, I folded, and then I kept the 3100 on the table. I, I bought 5000 more, and then just and then got... 7300 in on a flop of deuce 6 8 with two clubs with king 10 of clubs against Mr. Ensign's 7 9 of clubs. Now this is a really good spot to get my 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 money in because now he's got three straight cards on each side which is 6 uh, a seven or a nine, which is six more. So he had 12 outs 
and twice, which um, puts me approximately uh, about uh, 62%, I think. Uh, but if it might even be more, I, I really never ran the hand. Uh, but that's a I, that's a, a great spot to get my money in. And of course, if a king or a club rolls off, he's dead. So we ran it twice, uh, club the first time. And then the second time, the uh, board paired bottom pair. And I was joking around saying, like, pair the board again. Let me win the second one with a king high. But I end up hitting the king on the end, and I scooped the pot. It was like a 14,000 ship pot. Now, I got my money in in an amazing spot, uh, which was, made me feel really good. And uh, I ended up grinding out and breaking dead even for session one. In case anybody missed it, uh, you can go and check it out over on Poker Go. The Mouthpiece. If you'd like to take part in our phone call segment, you can give us a call at 702-329-0480. And if you're a snowflake or a pussy and you don't want to talk to me, you can email me at mouthpiecepodcast at gmail.com. Also, follow me at the Mouth Mattiso on Twitter for times that our call-in segment will be live. Okay, it's our favorite time of the show, our phone call segment. So call on in and light up the line. Welcome to the mouthpiece. This is Mike. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Good, man. Who's this? Uh, this is Donnie. Hey, what's going on, man? Not much. I was wondering, are you going to be going to uh, Barcelona? I will not. For the EPT? I will not be going to Barcelona. Uh, um, you don't usually play in the EPT. Why not? I've only played one. Uh, the main reason why I'm not going is I've got a pretty full schedule on my slate for the next month. I'm playing uh, two poker after darks next week uh oh. and then i'm going to, to playing a, a higher limit poker after dark on the 21st i think it is and then i'm going with Youth down to la and we're playing live at the bike a couple live games and then the the legends of poker over at, at uh the bicycle club Oh, nice. So you got a full schedule. Yeah. And then uh, depending when uh, Jewish holidays come up, I'm trying to get myself where I can get to uh, the World Series of Poker Europe, but I have to check that out. I'm not quite sure yet. Uh, Okay, nice. All right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it, buddy. You're welcome, man. I appreciate the call and keep listening to our podcast. Take care. I will. All right. Bye-bye. Welcome to the mouthpiece. This is Mike. Hey, what's up, Mikey? Who's this? Hey, hey, my name's Dan. Hey, I got a question mm. for you. Sure. I know a lot of these big-time TV tournaments and stuff have people backing people, mm-hmm. and you never know from the public who's got a piece of who, especially in these higher buying events. What would you think about some of that being like public knowledge during some of these mm. televised tournaments to give yeah. a, give a little bit more to the people who are watching that stuff? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a fucking sham, so... <laughs> If that's what you want to know. I think uh, the whole high roller scene's a sham. I think uh, over probably 
seventy percent of the people are are being staked and playing for five percent, ten percent or less. So uh yeah, I think it's a sham. Uh now the million dollar buy in that uh what they just had, uh most of the people that played uh sold seventy five percent of themselves out. Uh because none, nobody's putting up a million dollars. I don't care. Right. They're just not. Uh, maybe Vivek might have put up his own money. You think like the casual fan, like not no one who's like a poker player, just like the casual follower. Do you think they that those people have no idea that people are don't even well, put up their own money? Do you think they just assume it? Or the truth of the matter is, is. Um, the poker economy isn't what it once was. And right now, uh, a lot of players are selling pieces of themselves on stakings or U-stake or whatever um, staking mm-hmm. site out there is. And uh, they had, I mean, it was pretty well known for the million event that the, most of the top pros that played in it w- sold a lot of pieces of themselves on um some staking sites. So, uh, do I think that it should be public knowledge that of how much they were actually playing for? I, I think in a tournament that's an invite only, that only has a certain amount of players. Um, I think it, if it's going to be out there and and spread of this greatest poker tournament ever, I think people should know if the winner had ten percent of himself. Or he had fifty uh-huh. percent of himself, or I mean, I can't see uh, Bren Kenny having more than, and he's got money, but I don't. He's smart, smart guy, and one of the best players in the world. I, I do not see him putting up more than two hundred thousand of himself. Uh, so right. I would say I, I just always wonder, like you wonder, like if you know, it gets down to the final table or the final so many. Who has pieces of who, and if it if there's colluding that kind well, of goes. That's you know, a, that's that, that's the thing about these high rollers. A lot they most most of the people, and it's it's pretty well known in the poker world. And I call it out all the time. Uh, let's see, they had twenty seven supposedly businessmen, twenty seven pros or whatever. I would mm-hmm. probably, and I don't want to. I would. I'm, this is speculative. I want. This is not a definite answer. But out of the 27 pros, I would say 23 of them swapped huge percentages. Uh, so if one of the businessmen, if and it's basically they swap and they all get pieces. And as long as certain businessmen don't win, they kind of chop up the money. Now they play, they don't right. cheat. They don't, they play their hardest and they play to win and nobody, no, but there's no collusion or anything, but yeah, they all have pieces of each other. That, that I know that's, for a fact, just, you know, you think that's good for poker in the long run or you think it's going to be, it's going to hurt it. Um, I that's think, really all you hear about. I think it's horrible. I think it's horrible because I think it's fake and phony. So mm-hmm. I don't like things that are fake and phony. Now, uh, as far as people selling pieces of themselves, that's fine. I mean, there's a lot of people do that. I don't. I don't like when I hear. Well, I 
only had this much percent of myself because I swapped uh, 52% with different people. Like, uh, you know, I see that all the time, and I don't mm-hmm. know the exact figures, uh, but uh, I just don't like the... F- I don't like the phoniness of let's just say whoever wins and let's just say they won 19 million. I don't want people saying, Oh yeah, I won 19 million. I want, I would like people to say, well, you know, it's a big buy-in tournament and I only maybe had 20% of myself, but I don't want, I don't think it's fair or right for the public to think, Oh my God, this guy just won 19 million. Kind of like, when Antonio won the first million for 18 million and he got on the Howard Stern show and that Howard Stern asked him how much did he have of himself and he played it off like he had all of himself when the whole poker world knows that he had between 10 and 15% of himself and I just hate phoniness. Just say, hey, uh, it's a big buy-in tournament. I uh, I had a lot of people put up big pieces for me because I'm a great player. They believe in me and I had a 15% or I had 20%. You think anybody's going to think less that they won 3.8 million or whatever it is. Uh, right. So, so right. um, yeah, that's, that's a big problem that I have with it. And I call it out all the time and I get a lot of shit for it, but I don't want to see phoniness. I don't like the public being deceived. So I, I call it out. Awesome. Hey, I appreciate the insight, Mike. You hang in there, but I, I follow you. I follow you for a long time. Big fan, and uh, glad to see you play some good poker this summer. So I appreciate congrats it. Congrats on your series. Thank you. Take care, man. Thanks you for the call. Yep. Bye-bye. The mouthpiece. This is two-time WPT champion Jonathan Little, and you are listening to the mouthpiece. This week's episode fourteen, we're gonna talk to my friend, uh, Mr. Sean Deeb. Mr. Sean Deeb, are you there? Yes, Mikey. I'm hey, here. Hey, buddy. How's it going, man? Good. You know, just recouping from the World Series grind, adjusting back to dad life, and, you know, yeah. getting back on the schedule that the kids are on, which is quite different than the World Series schedule. Uh, yeah, the, the schedule the kids are on is what, 6.30 a.m.? <laughs> no, they're like 7.30, but the problem is neither of my kids like waking up in the morning. Uh-huh. Neither do I. Neither is my wife. So it's kind of four people all trying to cumulatively get each other awake. <laughs> Get them dressed, get them fed, you know, get them in the car to go to school or daycare, whatever they're going in for the day. Right. So, and then sometimes Ashley takes the kids and I get to go back to sleep. Those are the days I really enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I bet, you know. So that's good, you know. So you, um, for a lot of people that don't you know you, they all, you know, everybody likes to say shit about you and talk shit. And, well, like... You're a self-admitted, I'm an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't try to pretend to be nice to everybody. I don't try to pretend not to offend people, you know. I say what's on my mind. I have from day one in poker, you know. The online days made it a lot easier to talk shit. Right. And, you know, I come from a family of New Yorkers who always shit talk and always needle. And, you know, it was what I was raised in. And I found mixed games, which I fit in perfectly with that crowd. And, oh, yeah. yeah. That's always been me. Yeah, that, yeah, that's uh, see, and that's that's good. So I, you know, I was I was talking to to the great one himself, Mister Helmuth, yesterday, and um, we we talked about you, and uh, 
he he gives you he has a lot of respect for you too which is uh which is a lot you know coming from phil because he thinks everyone's an idiot and he's the greatest as you know and um so we had a lot of fun with it and uh we're talking what um what's the best way to describe this how i i like to tell people all the time and in uh people don't i don't give a fuck what they say is you could you could think Sean Deeb's an asshole all you want, but you gotta respect his poker. And everybody I say that that even think you're an asshole, they uh, they say the same thing. And my, you know, one of my questions to you is, how did you get so good at all the games? Uh, did you just find yourself putting way, a lot of hours in online learning them, or has it just come natural to you? I was a big volume guy in the online days, and it was all trial and error for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first got into the eight-game on Stars, I said to myself, who do I think is the best Raz player? Right. So I would pay attention. You know, I think uh, CG was one of the best stud players, the one-two mixed game. Mm-hmm. So every time CG was in a pot, I'd focus on what his down cards was, how he played, what his timing was, and how he played versus each player. Right. So I did so much mimicking early on in my career of each player's best game Mm-hmm. That, you know, made me, I was very rarely the best player in any one of the eight games in the mix, mm-hmm. but I was very often the second best player. So in a six-handed game, you're the second best player in all eight games, you're going to make a lot of money. And that's yeah. kind of what I figured out. And, you know, a lot of people played really bad versus me. They had bad, like, ideas of how I played, and I was they thought I was too loose, mm-hmm. thought I never folded. So, you know, I'd start folding to them, mm-hmm. and I kept adjusting quicker than they were adjusting to me. Gotcha. Which, you know, makes a lot of sense. And... I when you know when I first met you, uh, you were playing uh, mixed games, but you were also known in the online world more of a a top uh, no limit hold'em player. Um, where do you feel that no limit hold'em fits in to your repertoire of different poker games? I mean, do you do you still believe that that is your best game, or do you believe there's other games that are best your best game? I think it's one of my best games versus bad players. <laughs> I think it's one of my best games versus bad players, but right. versus great players, I'm awful. I mean, they put so much time into studying the game. Their sizings, their frequency, their ranges are so much more constricted, or so much more better, like, uh, I don't know, consistent, and they're just like, I can't beat them. You know, right. I overbluff them or underbluff them, and I just always call them down, and I just get owned by, you know, overbets and different things. So right. I feel like I'm being exploited a lot by them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just pick my spots when I'm at a tough no-limit table. I'm just going to play, you know, loose pre-flop but tighter post-flop and right. kind of go from there. Like, I still try to steal a lot of blinds. I mean, you have to be aggressive. That's why you see me at the World Series. I'm off in the chip leader ranks tournament I'm in right. because I'm going balls to the wall, and if there's a player better than me, I'm going to take a slightly minus EV spot to knock them out and get a fish there. Right. You know, I have these ideas of equity per orbit, you know, or what your win rate is. And if there's someone winning a lot of pots and, you know, taking chips from everyone else, those are chips I'm not getting. Right. So I definitely battle with the other most aggressive player very frequently in a spot where I will gamble with them and get it in light to mm-hmm. knock them out or knock myself out or, you know, get a much better table. Interesting. Now, I, you know, I kind of, I have that same theory. But I have a different way of going about it, which is, you know, one thing I always talk to you about is like, I play short stack, right? And when I go to collect chips, uh, I sometimes struggle to collect chips. Now, 
Uh, you're in, you, for some reason, I, <laughs> I don't know why, but people think you're like some loose maniac and you, <laughs> you're like, 100 percent opposite of that i mean i don't i guess well, i guess I mean, I, there, there, there's tendencies you know the games you play you play more of the higher volumes limit games where you kind of can't get out of line because right. limit you can't really bluff as much you know we haven't played much no limit right i'm definitely haven't. a maniac i definitely three bet and four bet more than almost anyone i definitely shove my stack in there way lighter than everyone else but everyone folds right now to all in so you know while it's still working i'm gonna keep doing it i i agree with you uh and I was talking with somebody the other day, and I said to them, I'm like, well, I I, I don't three and four bet that often, but I, I do a lot more. And uh, a certain person said to me, uh, uh, oh, you shouldn't be four betting light in this day and age. He goes, he goes, all those guys went broke. I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, if you see certain spots where their situations coming up and you know they're you're, you're like 100% sure they're at least 95% that they're going to fold if you four bet if you sense weakness uh I think you're supposed to go for it so uh I'm, I'm sure that's your opinion on things too right yeah I think a lot of people three bet expecting to get a call or a fold because everyone's calling their whole range in that spot right so by four betting you throw them for a loop and they're right. not as comfortable in four bet pots and to different sizings as they used to be Correct. because it happens so much less frequently. And so, you know, I've lived in a day of four betting all the time. So I'm very comfortable in with those stacked pots and, you know, with being lighter and bluffing and just repping a lot stronger than I have right. and go from there. Now, do people, because of who you are, like, I'll, I'll give you an opinion. Like when back in the day when I first met you and I was coming up or you were coming up, and I was more of an established pro um, before I had switched gears. Like in 2000, up until 2006, we'll say, I was considered like the most aggressive <laughs> no-limit player in the world. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> so uh, I, mean, I had to change change my um, my way of thinking because people were just consistently calling me down. You know what I'm saying? And so then I, I kind of got real nitty uh, for a long time. And then all of a sudden my image became more of Mike's and it. And then I started exploiting it. So, uh, uh, is when you were, when I first met you, I remember how super aggro you were. Do you, uh, do you consider yourself that you had slowed down from that a lot or, or do you, against bad players, you just stay aggressive? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, if people don't know how to play against pure aggression, you can just keep applying pressure, you know? Right. My opening range is wider than almost anyone that I know. Right. People laugh at when they see some of the hands I open. I'm like, well, if no one's three-betting me and the big one's going to call and play weak tight post swap with a mm -hmm. super wide range and not get a showdown, great. I'm going to keep printing money, you know? Right. And I have those goofy hands, and I get paid off in some really big pots where people never think I could have, you know, the jack seven suited or the eight nine off. You know, they're not right. adding those combinations in my range. Right. And every time I see, you know, some people play out some softer tables, I'm like watching them open fold hands that – I am so happy to open with, and I just right. watch how everyone keeps folding when they open a decent hand. It's like, so what's your, how often does your hand matter? If you're not getting the showdown, mm -hmm. if you know, if the table's getting showdown one every 50 hands, why does it matter what two cards you have? 
See, that's a good point. Now, I was talking about that yesterday. Uh, I, I, I brought up that almost that exact point about like me in the main event. I played five days and I, I won five hands at Showdown. And people are like, you made it almost to day six and only won five hands at Showdown? And I was like, yeah. And uh, so that's how you know you're playing well. I, that's, that's a good sign. You're now, granted, the five hands I won were, were really big pots. I, I picked up aces against kings to double on day one on day two i picked up uh eights flopped a set of eights against aces for a big double and then had a my my real biggest double was and it's pretty funny it's kind of like what you're talking about um i kind of waited for you know how you the good players are always uh you know looking to find spots and looking for weakness on certain players and uh but one of the things that you do i think much better and something i need to work on uh it's also because you play a lot more poker is you look for when you're in a no limit game i mean i I think you're somewhat think like i do you sit there for the first 15 20 minutes you kind of figure out how everybody plays who's aggressive who's tight and then you you kind of have used that to exploit it a little bit um And so uh, I kind of do the same. It takes me a little bit longer maybe to open up a little bit more. And it's it's something I'm really, really working on. And uh, as far as now I have this image, oh, Mike's at my table. Oh, he's tight. We don't need to worry about him. And, uh, you know, and then I'll, I'll let him, like, raise my blinds, take it, and, you know, give off the image that, yeah, you can steal from me. And then the next level goes up and I'll, I'll switch gears. And, and that's how I'm able to, to get as far as I've, I've been getting now. I shouldn't like be telling, telling all this on radio, you know, because, uh, but, but I've talked to you about this and, uh, you've, you've even told me many times, Mike, use your image, use your image. And, uh, I've really been, been using my image a lot and it's something, uh, uh, it's uh, I feel comfortable now of of pulling triggers and even post flop in spots where they're like oh Mike has to have it it's Mike you know what I mean and uh, it's helped me really do well in, in the no limit areas. Uh, I was uh, talking telling people so I respect you I believe no matter what you could be an asshole to everybody. You've always treated me with respect. People will be like, oh, well, he's slow. Will you that, da, 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 da. that time? I'm like, listen, Sean apologized to me more times than maybe everybody in the whole world combined until I had to finally tell him, Sean, it's okay. You don't apologize <laughs> anymore for the slow roll. Cause people, you know, you like to, to fuck with people like to needle people, but you know, me, I, and I've said this, you know, me and you are friends and, uh, you know, when you slow rolled me on Poker Night in America, people were like, ah, oh, Sean's an asshole. That I go, no, no. I'm like, listen, me and Sean, he knew that you could slow roll anybody but me. And he just like had a brain fart and forgot that. And he came up to me so many times. I know, Mike, I, I would never do that to you. And I'm just like, I know, you know, I know you were sincere about it. A lot of a lot of things you fuck with people and you fucking say you know you tell it like it is i I, you're you're a lot you're you're somewhat like me but you're kind of an asshole sometimes and you don't mind being (laughs) you don't mind being an asshole me me i'm the i'm the opposite i like you know i i try and be an asshole jokingly but overall i'm you know you know me you know i'm trying i just i'm nice to everybody and uh uh but that's okay i guess you know it's it's 
what you like to do. And it, and it gets – there's a lot of, of good. And, you know, there's a lot of times you're out of line. And I'll call you out on it. I'll say, okay, Sean, you were wrong on this. And, you know, well, we might argue about it. But uh, overall yeah, – we, we can debate. And that's like what most people don't realize is I can have a constructive conversation with people. And people – my close friends this summer said a lot of things that were out of line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I explained the background, the stuff they didn't know. And they go, you know, yeah, that makes sense why, you know, you'd feel that way. You still shouldn't have said it publicly, but, you know, I get where you're coming from. You know, you're always being attacked and this stuff. You have to defend yourself. Right. And, you know, some people think they can shoot whatever shot they can at people. Mm-hmm. And there's, But you say anything towards them, they're so thin-skinned. Yeah, no and accountability. People yeah. can say shit about me, and I, I don't hold – anyone insults me or calls me out or says it. Like, I have nothing negative about anyone for what they say about me on subjects. Like, I don't – just because you disagree with me doesn't mean I hate you. Right. And there's so many people in our culture and in poker and in life mm-hmm. that are just like, if you disagree with me on this key subject, whether it's politics mm-hmm. or, you know, markup or something in life, mm-hmm. you know, or family stuff, you're like, you immediately think you can't be friends with them. Uh, right. I am friends with so many people who disagree with me right. on key subjects because I look past that and I say, you know, that's what we get along 80, 90 percent of the time about every other subject. You can't agree. If you just surround yourself with people, all those same thoughts as you, you're never going to grow as a person and, you know, get better at life and, you know, succeed because you have to take advice. Even people that I completely disagree with, I still analyze and listen to their thoughts and reasoning mm-hmm. and debate. Well, maybe I'll pull myself a little bit that way because I like this point they make. You know, I'm willing to adjust, you know, what I say and what I think based on everyone's opinion, which most people I think are so steadfast that they're yeah. so like, I'm going to go with X. And I don't care that you disagree with X for any reason whatsoever because this is my conclusion. I'm sticking to it for the rest of my life. Yeah, and you know what? What you just said is is pure what's wrong with this country and this world. And it's like uh, groupthink. Uh, and it's, a lot of that goes on in the poker world. Uh, groupthink, uh, where, hey, uh, this is the right way to play. If you don't play like this, you don't know how to play, and you better learn how to play like this. And I'm just like, well, you know, uh, what what the fuck do you know? You know what I mean? Yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of advantages in poker to being the contrarian person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something I've done, and, you know, why I've had success against so many people. It's like, I'm willing to take lines on you know, I'm. I don't give a shit. If people are like, oh, he speeded it off. He bluffed it off. Mm-hmm. Can't believe he got in that many blinds with that hand. I said, mm-hmm. okay. Like right. you guys disagree with me, but year after year, I keep making money, so I'm doing Correct. something right. So even if I have some leaks, I'm still profitable, and right. until I'm not profitable, I'll keep doing it. Okay. No. You know, with that, uh, spinning over to that subject, kind of of when people like to uh, say, how'd you do this or how'd you do that now. Well, uh, let's go back to uh, a very disappointing – I don't want to bring bad memories for you. A very disappointing tournament for you, which I thought for sure you were going to win. Uh, and somehow you let uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Friedman beat you. <laughs> and you got – and if anybody out there doesn't know what happened, uh, Sean was head up uh, with, Adam, with Adam Friedman and um, for the uh, deal's choice title and – I know Sean wanted that. That's a people don't realize that's a that's a pretty big title to have that that tournament in 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 the poker circles because it's you know it's you have to play everybody's best game when you're playing against them and uh, like explain to the to the viewers how how hard that really is. Um, well, the hardest thing about that tournament is like when you're early, earlier in the tournament when you're playing, you're playing every six 
every six hands of each game, mm-hmm. and every sixth game you get to choose. So the thing is, you choose a game, and so much changes in the next 30 hands when other people choose games. Mm-hmm. You might see a showdown, stack sizes change, a player busts out, you know, mm-hmm. It's the dynamics are so consistent. Everyone's like, ask me, what game should I call? And I'm like, well, who's at your table? What is their stack size? Like, it's so complicated. Right. The thoughts, especially for someone like me, who I can call any game in the mix at any and, and be good at it. Right. So, like, I have more choices. You know, some people only play two or three games well. Mm-hmm. It's they get, you know, typecast. I'm going to keep calling this game. They're not, they're calling their best game. But, right. you you know, the key to that term is you have to call their someone else's worst game of course so you see so often you keep getting a game called until someone busts out and then you figure out who's the worst player right and you know that's such a tough tournament for that reason because it's funny because the, sometimes the person who the game's being called for is calling the game themselves and it's like you still don't get it that's why we're calling the game right. because you think you're good at this game and you keep playing all these hands because you can outplay everybody and this is a game where you can't outplay people correct and and you know people are like uh what game do you call, Mike? And I'm always saying, well, there there is a few games that uh, I I believe that most of the poker world not only doesn't play well but plays badly. Um, and I find myself uh, I try and call that a lot in the dealer's choice, which is uh, usually PLO eight or better. Or like even a problem. You might even agree with this is high low regular. I mean, it's a game that's never played anymore, but people are they're just awful at it. Uh, what did you um, find? Do you did you find any certain games where I know you're great at all the games? I, I mean, I've, I tell people this all the time. You could say what you want about Sean Deeb, but you got to respect his poker. He's great at all the games. I mean, I'm sure there's games you're you're somewhat you might be weaker at, but in, in a big mix, you don't have to worry about. Is there a certain game when you're playing that you tell yourself in a dealer's choice type tournament that, uh, hey, these guys are all bad at this game. I'm going to call this game. And probably also like stud high. I mean, I'm, I was shocked how great you play stud high with when there's no stud high games to basically play. Uh, how did you become pretty good at stud high? Just volume. I mean, I played, yeah, yeah. I used to play six to 10 tables of star, like stars and full tilt eight and 10 game. So I played more hands of every game, but I also at times would sit and play the best player heads up with sitting at the tables and battle with them heads up or three handed. So I played against the best players, you know, at lower stakes than I would normally play live cash games. Right. And I had learned a lot from them. You know, I figured, all right, these are the hands they wait to force you to raise. What is that reasoning? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're trying to get an extra small bet. They're trying to make the pot size bigger, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm so good at figuring out people's tendencies, like this person raised folds on third a lot. You know, mm-hmm. so they're stealing, but they don't continue. This guy never raised folds on third. So, like, there's so many tendencies in stud that people are not paying attention at. Where, mm-hmm. from my no-limit background, you know, I was never a HUD guy, but I still knew who folded the three bets, who folded the continuation bets. And I used that knowledge in stud really mm-hmm. well. And, you know, stud with the any structure, especially like eight, eight-handed stud, mm-hmm. you should be going crazy. And I just see so many people play so tight right. into, like, high cards, like, and they just never, ever play enough pots. They never, ever, you know, and because I play so many hands on third, mm-hmm. I know that I'm going to get paid off on seventh a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, know when to give up. And it's just, you know, the instincts in poker is you're like, this guy is just over and he's just going to call me down. Or this guy is going to believe me again. And, right. you know, I just have, and I represent a lot of hands. And, like, you see so few people try to bluff 
and stud high. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to sit there and I catch two suit cards. All right, I'm going to rep, you know, my flush draws. I'm going to do right. this. And like, you're just, people believe that so much more than they used to. Right. And so that's where it's like, cause they're just not comfortable in the game. And like, well, I would never race here without it. Oh, I only raced here with, you know, two pair. Oh, I always race fifth when I have ace, buried aces, you know, right. They're so stuck in their ways, and I do a little bit of everything, so it allows me to bluff a lot more streets or to represent things that I don't necessarily have. I I think back uh, at it when you bring that up. I think back at a certain hand we were playing like 400, 800 about five years ago. It was a stud eight or better hand where I had raised, you called, you bricked, I had bet, uh, you called, and now you bricked again. And I had then I bet and you raised me, and it, I'll, I don't know if you remember this hand. I was at the Aria, and you ended up a super stud game. Yeah, it was either super stud or eight or a regular stud eight. And I'm like, wow, how? I'm like, like like nobody does that, you know? Nobody you hit two bricks and then they raise you, and uh, and of course you know I had one a one one baby showing and then one brick, so. Uh, even though let's just say I was on a seven low draw or whatever, um, or you think I might have paired, uh, when you raised me that hand, now I'll throw in the, th- threw me for a loop and I'm like, well, what, 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 how can he raise in this spot? Well, he can't be bluffing. And, uh, I think on, I think maybe I had paired and seven, whatever, like my board was maybe deuce three and then your board re- came into two paints and you raised me and then uh the next thing you know i uh i i end up folding on sixth and you showed me some kind of bluff and we kind of laughed you laughed about it and i'm like i'll never forget this hand because i said to myself damn i'm like nobody does that i mean just because you know study eight or better it's very hard game to to steal to steal pots in you know you have to literally yeah, find it's, a, it's really tough to steal when you have the worst board and that's right. you know those spots that i look for where I'm like, I can't continue by calling. So my only option to win the spot is by raising and, you know, representing this, which it, it's so credible. It's mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? You're sitting there saying, you think there's 0% chance I'm bluffing. Right. So, and you're also a good hand reader. So, like, I can run those bluffs versus you. Right. But, you know, a random idiot, I'm not going to try that versus. Right, right. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And uh, listen, I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, you don't try and bluff idiots. Try and, you could try and bluff good good players you know people who who you know are know what they're doing or 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 know how to play and 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 you can use that to in certain spots to exploit them just like i like i was kind of tell you but like about me being so tight and then using my image now the one thing i that you do better than me in limit tournaments is and i have no problem saying it is you are able to open ranges up a little bit more in limit tournaments than most people would you find would you agree with that yeah i mean i i know that opening is profitable in all poker right if you have initiative if they have a capped range you're going to win that pot more than them so it's fine to inflate the pot because you're going to win it over half the time so even though it's heads up pot and you have way the worst hand if they're going to fold on a later street enough of the time it's okay right and that's you know what i do and I always make sure I have the right stack size to if I lose that pot, I'm not totally crippling myself, you know, and that's something that I get is I know exactly how many hands I can play to showdown mm-hmm. in my stack at all times. I'm like, I have 20 big bets. All right, I can play four hands, you know, right. in this game. And I know that 
if I lose two of them and I got caught bluffing, I need to, you know, lock it down right. and then adjust my ranges on that. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, exactly like what we were kind of talking about, um, you know, going into where I'm going to go back to the to the hand in a, in a few seconds with the, about Adam Friedman. Uh, but even in the uh, closer tournament where the end where you finished the real disappointing sixth, um, people don't people, people don't seventh, people don't realize um, you for all the viewers out there. You told me you were playing between 12 and 15 big blind stack for hours. And uh, and then you finally got a hold of some chips to get to the final table. Uh, a lot of people that think you're over-aggressive, a maniac, uh, play a lot of pots, they don't uh, respect your short game. Uh, and uh, a lot of times I, what we didn't play that, haven't played that much, wasn't sure how good your short game was. And... Uh, you said, Mikey, I grind with the best of them. And, uh, and, you, and then uh, we played together this summer with, in the 08, and uh, I watched you uh, play. And we were, there were so many hands. That we watched some of these, these people, quote-unquote, superstars. Oh, this guy's supposed to be a great player. And they'll play a hand. Uh, hey, I have no problem. It was a, I think it was uh, Robert Mizrachi hands. And me and you were shaking our oh, heads. Oh, there's at least three of them. <laughs> yeah. And we were just we were shaking our heads like, Really? You know, I remember he put this some ridiculous beat on you with some hand that me or you couldn't even put a dollar in with in uh, 08 tournament. And so that's when I realized, you know, uh, man, uh, Sean D plays 08 pretty good, too. And uh, come, you know, that come, coming from me saying that, you know, I know that makes you feel good because, you know, that's my best game. And uh, the split games I, you know, I work I've worked hard at to become really good at. And uh, so me respecting you in uh, 08 was uh, a whole I never thought you were a great 08 player uh then I saw you making some folds that that I make and maybe you make uh in certain spots pre that that other people don't and uh you um you, you know you showed me a, I was really impressed with that but uh it was funny where we're able to look at each other in certain hands and just like really you know, how the fuck can you get in there with that hand in this spot? And and you and you call it out like it is, and that's it makes it makes me laugh, you know. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for you for that. Uh, going back to the Adam Friedman hand, we'll, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that because you saw you you know what we were talking about. You have all these big blinds. How did this happen? And um, uh, what well, what was your for everybody out there that don't know? Um, you can walk uh, the um, viewers out of what, how the hand happened, what the thinking process was. We now know that it was a disaster and it didn't work out. Uh, and so many people in the poker world were like making fun of you and, oh, how can he do that or whatever. What was exactly your thought process? You, did you just, was it a blow up? Was it a mistake? Was it just you went with something and it just was wrong? Try and explain to everybody. So basically, you know, we played four and five handed, and or four and five handed for like a couple hours that day, and three handed for like three hours with Matt Glance being a short stack and me being a chip leader. Mm -hmm. I think I got up to like sixty to seventy percent of chips in play, Mm -hmm. but Matt, you know, had like maybe five percent, and Freeman had you know the rest. Mm -hmm. And I, me and Matt kept calling no limit, you know, because that's the toughest game for Freeman to play pots with me with ICM. So I kept calling that game. I agree. And he was playing, playing like you know very poorly. 
and he, you know, just kept not folding to my three bets. Mm-hmm. And we played a, like three three bet pots before that, where you know I started like in a single race spot where I just kept having really strong hands. Like I flopped two straights, and both times he ended up sucking out, making full houses. So right. those were like two very big equity pots that if I win any one of those three, that I would have you know went on to win the tournament ninety five percent of the time. Right. So, but the thing about those three hands is he flopped two pairs, you know, had aces on the board, mm-hmm. and he just played them slow. Right. So he had played even a couple of them were heads up. He played all these pots slow with flop two pairs. Right. So, and he's been he had yet to fold to a three bet of mine. So you know he's calling a, a lot of hands to a three bet, and I started sizing up my three bets, and I'd actually narrowed my range for like the last thirty minutes or so, mm-hmm. and he didn't realize that I had done that yet. So he opens for min raise, but we're playing with big blind Annie. So right. with that, I'm getting four to one immediate. So mm-hmm. I'm playing almost 100% of hands. Mm-hmm. So I three bet a shack off to I think like eight and a half big blinds, which is you know a somewhat large three bet, mm-hmm. but somewhat standard the way you know the best normal players play that deep, right. 100 blinds deep. Yeah, you and have he to. flat, and uh, I have a shack off, so the flop comes eight seven four rainbow, and I lead for like third pot, my standard sizing, mm-hmm. and he now raises me. And so because of every time we've played a pot so far where he's actually flopped good equity in a three-bet pot, he thinks I just keep bluffing, so he just keeps calling. Mm -hmm. So as soon as he raised the flop, I convinced myself that, you know, he didn't have anything. I thought, you know, maybe a set, maybe five, six, but that's about it, you know, in the eight, seven season. And when the turn comes to seven, um, I check and he bets. But the the turn came a jack, made you a jack. No, turn was a seven. No, no, Rufo was a jack. Oh, really? Turn, Yeah, turn was a seven. And I check, and now he bets again. And now that seven's a pretty bad card for his range for almost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and also remove, there was only one eight-seven suited combo left. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you know, there's one combo sevens, a couple combos of eights, fours, and a couple five-six suits, and that's it. So I think when he barrels that turn, like, I just know he's not raising, like, an overpair there. I know he's not barreling there. So I think his most likely hand is going to be, like, ace-five, ace-six or 9 10. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot more combos of those hands than, you know, or just random gut shot hands. He could even have pocket sixes, pocket fives, but I didn't think he would bet the turn with those hands. He might raise the flop. Mm-hmm. So when he bets the turn, like his value hands are drastically going down while his bluff hands are staying at the same percentage. Mm-hmm. And he's been, you know, I've folded to him a lot on the river so far mm-hmm. because, you know, he, I've just known he's had it. So I think, you know, in my head, He's like finally doing his bluff because I know he's had it every other time. Now he's taking this line that's different right. than all his value hands. Right. So when I actually call the turn, I river jack. I'm actually not excited about that card because now nine ten gets there. Right. But you know when I check and he shoves, I'm still getting. I think I was getting like five to one at that point. So I'm like I have to call um, because I have a pretty good hand and he could have you know jack ten or jack nine be value shoving if he had a gut shot make a jack. There's a couple other hands the bluffs that I still think he might have. And so I call it, and, you know, he has 7-8 offsuit. Now, I made a mistake not knowing he was calling that wide to that big of a three-bet. Right. And But I also don't think it's that bad. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those he played the hand worse than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm fine, like, I'm fine here calling a turn heads up for 100K with ASI. Like, I would have, mm-hmm. I would, would just as happy to call on a deuce river he shoves, and I was going to call. Like, that was my plan. That, I went with my, you know, tendencies of how he's been playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone can berate me for that, but sometimes you're right. And I don't mind to make a hero call for all the money 
whether everyone thinks it's bad, I think, you know, with the history we had mm-hmm. and how I've been playing and my, what his, my perceived range by him is, mm-hmm. that he, I think he never, ever would imagine I'd call him down with ace high there. Right. So if someone never thinks you're calling down with, you know, a lot of your hands, you can call down with some goofy hands, and sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. Now, now one of the one of the critiques of the hand, and it was a critique that I brought up, and I didn't bring it up to you, but I brought it up to many other people because uh, I it was right after you had lost. You know, I threw one needle in uh, when you're in the mixed game tournament, but you know, I'm not the type of person that listen when people. I love to needle people, but when people are really down, I or something bad, I I, I don't. I, it's just not the right time, you know what it is. But uh, you know, and I'm going to tell you what my my thought process was after I read the hand, heard whatever is. When you look back at it, do you think to yourself, would is in my like you said, you pick no limit hold'em. I think that was the correct game to pick. Do you say ever tell yourself? Beside, you know, the outcome. Well, maybe I kind of overanalyze this because Adam Friedman is never playing a big pot in no limit versus you. Do you? But that, he's which kind is of my forced to play big pots in no limit because he knows half the games called are going to be no limit. You know, mm-hmm. I called no limit for ten to fifteen rounds straight, and okay. I was convinced. You know, and Adam sits there and says, "Oh, I've gotten so much better at no limit." Like he thinks he's better at that game no. than he is. And no, he I thinks agree. he can take advantage of his image in some spots in that game. Right. And he even told me, at, like, throughout the summer, he's like, oh, I'm so much better at No Limit than everyone thinks I am. And I'm like, you're not. It's funny. I'm glad you think that. But, you know, mm-hmm. you're just – it's great because he's got that confidence. No, it like is he's good. better. And, and so, like, people are like, oh, he's not going to play a big pot. I was like, he was willing to play a big pot. And he was willing to, you know, get out of line. Obviously, his pre-flop call shows that he thinks he can beat me in position – you know, 100 blinds deep, calling eight and a half big blinds with eight, seven off. So yeah, if he thinks so, that that's a call, that's because he thinks he has a post-flop edge. He thinks he can use position well. Hmm. If he's willing to call with hands like that, he's playing on bluffing for a lot of chips because, so you, you know, you, a three-bet pot, sacks are getting in a decent amount. So you had you had three-bet him to over 4X, is that what you're saying? And he called with seven, yeah. eight? And, uh, yeah, that makes sense. So it's – we – I, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I understand what your thought, what you're thinking now. Um, it's it's kind of weird that they had uh, they had report. Oh yeah, they 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 reported it right. Seven on the turn, Jack on the river. Um, the a lot of the the critique you got was when uh, when you led the flop of the seven eight four got raised. Like did you like you were just saying. You you just told me your thought process, and of course, every railbird they're not in the moment, so it's so easy to critique somebody from the rail and say, "Oh, you see how bad Sean D played that last hand? What a joke!" You know. But there's listen, you went with your gut, and that's all that matters. We the best players are born with a gut; uh, they're born with an instinct. You have that instinct, and I have that instinct, and if, as long as you follow that instinct, you're you, you're more than happy. I at least I am. And for a while, I would have the in, instinct, especially when I was sick for a while, of not following my instinct. And in my life in poker, I, as long as I follow my instinct, I was right. Like at least eighty. But Mike, don't follow your instincts in sports. 
No, yeah, of course not. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, it's, it's fu- the funny part is about sports is, and, and this is the truth. Uh, if I just pick th- two or three games a week and uh, in certain spots, it's kind of like poker, and uh, I would be great, but I'm such a degen that uh, if I win, let's just say I pick three games, I go 3-0 and that week, That's that would be the worst thing that ever happened to me because instead of looking for situations and looking to uh, at certain sports bets, I find myself betting the entire board. And so it's like an alcohol taking its first drink. And unfortunately, it took me seven years too late to realize that. You know, I can't tell you how many times I said I could control it this time, I could control it this time, and I'd bet a dime a game, a dime a game, and of course, then I'd win, win 10, 11, 12,000 a dime a game. And then the next thing you know, I take one or two bad beats. I go on tilt. I bet the whole we're bored, and I'm broke again. So, uh, I've, luckily for me, I've took that, taken that out of my life. So, you know, that's really good. Uh, so, oh, that's good to hear. You know about about that hand. Um, uh, it's so funny. Uh, I said that I was going to be interviewing you today, and Adam Friedman texts me, and he says, "Hold on, give me my phone. I had to read this to you." Uh, let's see. He says, "This is pretty good." <laughs> Ask Deeb what it was like me kicking his ass head up. Does he think I'm even an average at poker? When am I going to be on your show? <laughs> well, if Adam ever wants to run it back for 100K, we can play Dealer's Choice, same mix, whenever he wants. <laughs> there you go. You know? There you uh, go. I'm willing to keep playing him until he shows me otherwise. Yeah. Like, he, he is better than some people think he is. He is. But like most people in poker, he's nowhere near as good as he thinks he is. Well, yes. Exactly. But that's probably true about me. That's probably true about you. I mean, we right. all think we're, you know, one of the best ever. And yeah. there's probably some sicko young kids. There's some up-and-comers. Or people who just ran terrible that are better than us. It's just, you know, there's crazy results in tournament poker. There's crazy results in cash games. And, you know, other people have shit going on in life that ends up making them go broke. So you really – it's crazy because the public perception of the best players in poker is usually so far off of who actually is the best. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's pretty funny. He's like <laughs> – I'm glad you said he says, he goes, find out. He says, funny. I just want to think of uh, if he thinks I suck, have skill or talent. Uh, and you just said people are a lot better. He's a lot better than people think he is. And um, listen, I like it's fun needling Adam Freeman. Uh, people, people out there in the poker world, if you don't if you're not in the poker world and you're just listening to my podcast, uh, Adam Friedman is. Uh, well, they call them mini Mike for a long time. Uh because, yeah, but you're not known for crying as much as him. Yeah, he cries. He <laughs> did because I'm a little bit old. It's like I take bad beats now. I just say nice and you know. It's because, but back in the day, and I mean, in like 2006, 2005, people put a bad beat or, or paid that against me. You know, everybody played bad then, so you could really, you know, say whatever you wanted and. You know, it didn't matter. The next bad player showed up. And now, you know, a lot of people play good. So you have to respect their game. And uh, that makes me, uh, you know, respect them a little bit more. And if I take a beat or I don't cry, but my God, you're right. Adam just, he he just loves to cry. My wife, look, I have not had all these chips. Now I got this much. I got this. I go, Adam, it's poker. I don't want to hear, you know, everybody get the, nothing. I bet you're going to probably agree with me on this is, is there anything more tilting than when you're, when you go on a break and you have to hear somebody else's bad beat story? <laughs> it's pretty bad. That's why I usually stick to most few people I talk on breaks. So I don't have to deal with it. 
Yeah, and and that and it's a good thing, you know. Like with me having my scooter, of uh, I see somebody uh, walk up to me, I go, "Oh God, here comes a bad beat story," and I'll be like, "Hey, I got, I got, I got, I got to go to the bathroom. I'll talk to you in a minute." You know? I'm like, I don't want to hear. It. I mean, we we all we all grind. We all do the same thing. Uh, so uh, I, uh, you know, I started off a lot of uh, the intro to this podcast, uh, and I talked to, and I I stressed out a lot about how you helped me really end up having a really good world series uh with like three events to go i was really down and uh you remember we had a talk and you looked and, and you said to me you said mike relax you're playing good that's all i i could see you're playing good you're feeling good you know the stud eight or better's left the big the main events left there's a bunch of other tournaments left if you don't do well there he goes, relax. And you said that to me. And then the next day I, I got fourth in the stud eight, uh, pretty disappointing. And, uh, and I had a real deep run in the main event. And, uh, you know, I appreciate, I appreciate that because hearing that from somebody I respect and hearing somebody that is able to, you know, to keep me calm. Cause you know, I'm, uh, I'm very emotional. And when things start to unravel, I'm, you've seen me just, unravel and you're you know you were able by you able to say that to me i'm you know it kept me focused and uh i appreciate that a lot yeah. and I yeah i mean i i definitely see a lot of similarities to me you know previously in my career where i you know would be so affected by that stuff and you just have to realize it's a mental game right and especially in the world series you have to show up to the next tournament playing your a game right like people so often you can just tell they just took a bad beat in their last tournament because they're just giving up or you right. know they just don't care you know, there was like, I think like three events this summer, I kind of was like, I don't really want to be here. And I definitely gave it away. Right. You know, and obviously I play, I think I play like 80 events, 80 to 90 entries total. So like, mm. it's okay to have a couple, you know, blast offs in there. Right. But, you know, you have to be aware of that. And like, I know I'm like, all right, I'm going to play really bad in this tournament. And then I'm going to take the night off and go relax, get a massage and, you know, come back tomorrow back on my agent. Yeah. And that's, you know, why I have, you know, a good child player of the year every year because I can show up every day ignore the previous days you know online grind helped me so much with that and the volume i put in that mm -hmm. that's why i think you know when it comes to volume at the world series i'm going to be one of the best horses when it comes to that because i can sit there play every game i can wake up every day and i can play you know 14 16 hours for two months straight like i did right and you, and i asked you this also during the world series is like how are you able to go from tournament to tournament to tournament to tournament when you're i mean you're not that young anymore what are you 37 36 33 oh you're still th 30 oh, you're still like 33 oh so wow I, when i met you you were like 21 then pretty much <laughs> i yeah. was a baby you was a baby so um i uh you know a lot of things is and i i talked to uh Mr. Uh, Ensign that won the main event this year, who and I told him, I said, you know, your inspiration, you're 55 years old, you just grinded eight days of this tournament, and you go up to him, and he's like built like a truck. I mean, this guy w works out three hours a day every day, and I mean, when you get up to in our, my age or his age to compete, you, I, I always felt you're going to have to get in a lot better shape and you know we see you going from tournament to tournament and and you throw you through that uh you throw that right out the door you know so yeah everyone always, it was funny because i think joe ingram had a great uh conversation with poker sasha where they're like you know you gotta like be doing keto you have to be working out you have to do this you have to balance and they're like to crush the world series and that's true for 99 percent of people right i think i'm the true outlier where 
you know, I can be unhealthy, but I can be relaxed because my mind is strong, you know, and I can sit there and be, you know, just relaxed and not work like stressed out. And I have to save a lot of my energy for poker because right. playing those hours is exhausting. I could not imagine no. going to the gym or like doing all these things that people want to do during the day because that's, you know, a couple hours of extremely strenuous activity that is going to wear you down for the rest of the day. Well, I'm not going to lie know, to you. These about... people want to change their schedule during the summer. And like, if you don't do that year round, if you're not Jason Kuhn, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be just pick it up for the summer because that's what you heard in the podcast. You should keep your routine as similar as possible yeah. to your day to day, so you you know are comfortable. What... You're not you know over exhausting yourself, and you're not all of a sudden lacking energy and wearing away at the end of the night. Like, I see so many people the last two levels of any tournament. You just see it. They're they're you not paying it. attention. They're not picking up a tendency. They're not paying attention to stack size or a showdown. Like, oh, I agree. Focused. With you. Um. I want where I pick up, especially no limit, is uh, the last level of the day. It, you hear people say, "Oh, it's drinking level now, right?" And then I've I, like I've had a tight image all all day, and let's just say my I chipped up to eighty or ninety thousand. Uh, I would say unless I take a bad beat without risking a chip uh, in that last hour, I go from ninety to. 140 almost every time and they don't even know i'm just talking shooting the shit with them and they just you know oh it's tight mike he he has to have it and like you just said it's so easy the the best time to exploit people are the last level of the night last two levels of the night and uh uh the thing is is but in the you know in the 10k mix games uh you're playing so so big that it's not as uh quite as easy to exploit people but in the i agree with you 100 percent that in the in the no limits it's uh it's really the the best time to pick up a lot of chips because most people aren't paying attention i tell all the young kids uh people ask me i'm gonna my first world series or uh what what should i do and my always advice to them is get on a routine do not go out partying during the world series wait till i listen the strip clubs and the bars and the nightclubs are are all going to be there after the world series okay but if you go out and you go out to to the rhino till five in the morning and then you have to be at a tournament uh at noon uh i don't give a shit who you are you, you, no matter how great a shape you're in, it's going to affect you. And uh, it's it's one of the things that people don't... One thing that is also good, not only just the volume that you play, but you don't party. You know, you're not... You're married, you know, you're, you settle down. You don't go out drinking all night, you know? So I'm sure when you were younger, you might have. But uh, it, it's a big... You know, if you want to be successful, you look at... You'll probably agree here with me is you look at all the top, players or even the top people that are that are in uh contention for player of the year i don't think one of them has a drink during the world series or even drinks uh, would you is that a fair assessment or i mean i drink a little bit like mm-hmm. i'll drink one or two days or maybe like we're playing the big 50 i got drunk during one of those days but like that's how much stores are taking seriously mm-hmm. but you know for me or, like i owe a lot of my success last couple of years to frank casella because you know i stay at his house Mm-hmm. And he has a beautiful home, and right. ev- like almost every night, like probably four nights a week, mm-hmm. we'll go home, we'll bag chips, we'll hop in the jacuzzi, have two beers, talk about the day, talk about politics, talk about whatever, you know, just wind down. Mm-hmm. And that's so relaxing, and then I sleep well, and then I'm you know ready to go the next day. Yeah, It's like, you know, the years where I would stay at Aria or Bellagio and finish a bag of tournament, go play a cash game till 8 in the morning, 
or just played to my restart, you know, and be up for two days straight, like, my results yep. seriously suffered. Like I, I remembered that. You know, I, yep. any year I tried to play tournaments in cash, it was just too much on me. Exactly. And you know, I still made money, but I didn't make nearly as much as I should have those years. Mm-hmm. And so the last two years, I actually haven't played, uh, maybe two or three years, I haven't played one hand of cash during the summer. Ah. And I know that I could prob- I could make more money playing cash. Way more. But I also love the tournaments. I also love the lack of exposure, you know, because I have a family. I don't want to expose myself to lose a million or two million dollars in the summer. Right. You know, which could easily happen if I try to play the biggest games. Right. And so because of that, I, you know, my exposure is always three, three fifty. And then, you know, like cash flow, I'm like, food. you know, also that dealer's choice. I was like, all right. And the 50 K I'm like, I'm free rolling the rest of the summer. I don't right. give a shit what happens. I'm making at least a hundred K and you know, I just was that's relaxed. A, and I said, that's a good, my goal is play of the year. It's a good feeling. Like, that's the thing is, you, yeah. yeah. It's a good feeling to cash or make big scores early in the series. Uh, the last two years I had done that, I was free rolling the whole world series. And, uh, I mean, people don't realize it's, uh, even though, uh, you know, you're probably more well off in poker than most people. Uh, most people are, you know, they're playing They're, you know, they're, they're, this is their time of year to make money. And if things start to go bad, they start to, to fall apart or whatever. And, uh, but you're, you know, you know, able to, to stay focused and do that. I, I, I realized that three, two years ago, uh, I had, even though I've had three good world series in a row, um, I remember I was doing what you were saying. I would get knocked out of a tournament, run over to Bellagio, play four eight hundred or two four three six mix, whatever's going on. And uh, uh, sometimes I played round a clock in a tournament that I wanted to play. I don't play because I have been all night cat, uh, playing, or I end up do playing, grenading it, and uh, it was just too much. And for most of the viewers out there that don't know, I mean. Playing cash in tournaments are are completely do, two different animals. I mean, in cash games, you could make a uh, just a horrific call or whatever, and say, "Well, that was a bad call," and then just put more money on the table. Uh, where in a tournament, whether it's no limit or even mixed games, uh, once those blinds get up there, you I mean you, you you get in a hand, you play bad, uh, you know, you're it puts a serious dent in your chances of winning that tournament. So. Uh, I decided, uh, just like you, the last two years, zero cash. I mean, not even one hand of cash. And uh, it's definitely helped me uh, do well in the tournaments. And uh, you, you agree. It's very it's very hard to play cash and tournaments. Would you agree during the World Series? Yeah. I mean, I, I really think most people should stick to one or the other. Right. And it's just the, the schedule, the style of play, you know, the results like mm-hmm. cash, you know, you're going to have a lot more big wins and big losses, but you know tournaments are going to have small losses and a big win here and there. So it's a total different mindset because with tournaments you can always get out in one day. In right. cash, you can be buried enough where you can't, and right. that really affects a lot of people too much. Yeah, and I um like even uh, I was talking with Jesse Martin this this year, and he, you know, he's a great, great all around player, especially in cash games and stuff. And he struggled during the World Series this year. Um, probably one of the most he struggled in the tournaments. Now, I don't know if that had a lot to do with uh, when he got knocked out, if he was playing uh, uh, a lot of cash, getting stuck, getting, you know, when you, people don't, I, I never did ask, but I do know that when you're playing 400, 800 every day, um, and then you're getting stuck 20, 30, you know, so, you know, it's so easy to get stuck 20,000 playing four and eight, 
and now you're grinding and you're grinding and you're grinding. And then even with the late reg on the 10 Ks where you could, let's just say show up at seven o'clock, eight o'clock, uh, it's still taxing on your, it just, it's just meant it's so hard mentally. Uh, and I'm not saying this happened to Jesse. That's why he had a bad world series in the tournaments, but it's so hard mentally to, to literally grind those games. Like you saying where you're, Oh man, I'm stuck. I lost 30. Oh, I just lost 30 again. Oh man, I can't win a pot again. And the next thing you know, you're 85,000 loser in three days playing four and 800. And now you're like, Oh, I have to grind for three days. And if I don't finish top three, how am I going to get that money back? And then people don't realize how much mental strength is involved with playing poker, uh, especially playing both uh, cash and tournaments. So would you agree with that? Yeah, I, that's totally true. And, you know, I played a lot with Jesse this summer, and mm-hmm. he was on the fantasy team I had a piece of, and I love his game, you Me know. Too. And he, I was deep in him. We were final two tables in, like, three tournaments together, and he ran awful. Right. And, you know, it's so brutal because it, it messes with your head because you're just like, I can't win any key pot, you know. His equity was massive in a bunch of tournaments, and mm-hmm. he was, you know, the best player, if not the second best player, every time we were deep, you know. Right. And it just shit happens very poorly. And it definitely messes with you. And, like, he definitely seemed more ornery because he's just, you know, he, he's got a family. You know, you got to right. make money. And, like, if you're not making money in the World Series as a poker pro, especially the top guy, right. you feel like shit. You know, oh, and it, yeah. it definitely fucks with you. And, like, it was definitely affecting you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what I'm like. You got a week and you got the rest of the year to think about how you could have played the last week of the World Series. And right. you, you know, saddled up and fucking crushed. Right. and got the results that you wanted. Right. You know, it could have been better. It could have been worse. But, yeah. you know, you, you recognize that, and that's the nice thing about tournaments is, like, you can always get out. Every Almost every time you play will get you even on the summer or get you winner on the summer. Right. And you just have to, you know, keep playing your best game and ignore the results, ignore how much, uh, you know, the cards are bad or the dealers are bad or, you know, other shit's happening or you're dealing right. with drama, you know. You just have to focus just on poker. Would you? Would and, you, you know, that's where my wife gets the assist for everything with my results is, you know, she deals with all the drama, all the business stuff we have going on, the mm-hmm. kids, you know. Right. That's tough on her for two months. Yeah. And I would not have that this success without her holding down the fort. So she, everyone knows to not call me during the summer. You know, my family doesn't bug me. I don't hear about, you know, any parties, any deaths, anything. It's like right. total radio silence for two months. She deals with everything. And they relate to her, and if she thinks I would want to know about it, she tells me. Right. But she's kind of the filter for all the shit, so I can be as focused as possible on poker. Yeah, and you know what? I, I, you know, I remember my my girlfriend for almost seven years, and uh, you know, every year I, I I tell her the same thing. I, I and most of the time, you know, she's gotten really better, and that's one. She was one of the, again one of the reasons why I had such a great World Series this year. Is is there's been many times I come home and. We get in arguments, and I'm like, you don't understand. You have to understand poker by, you know, it's worth six years in. I'm like, for six weeks, no matter what happens, I you just got to keep me in the uh, right mind frame, uh, a positive mind frame. If I come home negative, you have to, you have to, you know, pull me up. It's and it's very when you have a partner that's able to do that, it's it's so important and. Uh, it's it's almost one of the reasons why I thought Daniel was going to have a good World Series like he did is he you know he's always been in now we know you don't you guys don't get along or whatever but that's beside the point but when you're when you get married and you're with some in a good relationship and when they always you know how they say happy li- wife happy life well during the World Series it's it's like you 
you want you want to make money for the family, you have to keep me straight. Now, you know what I'm saying? On the straight and narrow, keep keep the distractions away, uh, the negative, all the negativities away, because it's so important to be in a great mindset. If you're in a great mindset, you're and you're a, a top player, you're you're going to make money. You know, when people sit there and say, oh, I had a horrible World Series or you will probably agree with me that by the how many people do you see by week or let's just go to the last five years by week two of the world series they're crying and bitching how bad they're running or whatever and i mean i kind of look at them and i laugh i'm like dude it's like week two of the world series there's like six weeks left i'm like if you're bitching already you're you got no chance you know and you could see right away the the players that you know oh, well, I'm going to have a big World Series, and now we're and all of a sudden a week to even two weeks in, and and now you're playing with them. They're playing bad. They're they're they, they look like they're tilted, uh, and they are. They're they've mentally checked out so many times by week two of the World Series. Uh, I mean, I I could tell you a few names uh, over the years, but but uh, you, I don't need to. You know who they are. You know uh, what do you? You agree, like eight? Like, am I overestimating that eight out of the ten people that after two weeks they they mentally check out and then they whine about how bad a World Series they had? I, I think it's an issue of so many of them pump themselves up before the summer. Like, I'm going to crush it. I'm going to win a brace. I'm going to do this. Like, they have such high end goals, right? And like, you know, like you're like, oh, you want to just win, not to win a brace. I'm like, no. I know most years I play the World Series, I'm not going to win a bracelet. Yeah, I had some good shots. Yeah. But, yeah, like all those tournaments, I had multiple hands. Or if I lost them, I would have got 30th. I would have never cashed, you know. Right. I'm happy with my results because I know that those results add up. Right. And I know that, you know, I'm making money. And if I just keep buying buying in and making good decisions, long-term I can make money. Yeah, I didn't win two races like last year, but I didn't win $2 million, you know. But I'm okay with that. I'm content, and I'm not, I don't put that stress on myself that other people do. That they need to win and win and have really Right. You know the and the funny thing is, some of you have the best first week. They bomb the rest of the summer. Right. You know because they're so confident. They're like, oh, I'm so great. I'm better than like. Right. They just convince themselves that they can outplay everybody, and they just start stealing. So it's like such a unique thing that so many people start at the same point skill wise, mm-hmm. and so many of them drop off because of results, whether positive or negative. Right. Because they just don't. They they convince themselves that they're either running better or you know. Right. And, you know, I, I, I look at it as like, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just say, uh, as Robert Mizrachi, I'll use as a uh, example, you know, he's one of my good friends. I think he's a great player. Um, he's one of those people that if things go bad early, he checks out and, and then he'll want, and same with, same with his brother and they'll whine and oh, I'm running so bad or whatever. Um, this year he got out, he started the World Series off good, got in a good place and and stayed. Even though he didn't get a bracelet either, I wa- I played with him in so many different events where he was playing sharp, playing with focus, uh, and even and that's after he played like shit at that at that ten k oh eight table we were at, and then he ends up getting a real good result, and the next thing you know uh, he's getting in the more of in his own a little bit more confident and uh it's poker is so much about confidence you know that and it's very easy to get down uh most people in poker they they just don't don't seem to understand that 
that you're not going to win every pot and you're not going to just show up and win a bracelet. And he had, I brought out his name because he had won a bracelet like three years in a row. Uh, and that was going into like two years ago. And uh, then there was last year he, uh, or maybe the year before, I, I think it was last year, I lose track of time, where he started off bad, he was running bad, and now I'm playing in a PLO tournament with him. I, it was, it was two, that was uh, three years ago. He's been, it's been three years now since he, he won a bracelet after winning it three years in a row. And I remember he showed up, I'm betting everybody bracelet bets, blah, 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 blah. And, and uh, you, not I'm not trying to knock him or single him out, but a lot, like you're saying, a lot. it's what a lot of people do. They set these goals. And um, I don't know, what I put on all my video vlogs this year that I was taking is, you know, show up, I get some chips, maybe this is my day, or if I got to a day three, you know, let's just run good on a day three, because no matter, you'll, you'll agree with me no matter what. I mean, when you're playing limit tournaments, no matter how good you play, I mean, you have to catch cards. You have to make great folds and give yourself a chance. Uh, you know, I mean, how many times have you folded a big pot knowing you're beat and left yourself two big blinds and then ran it up in a limit tournament? I know you've done that probably as many as I've done it, you know, and you have to... Yeah, I mean, people are so like, uh, you know, 50 is a great example, but there's so many great players, great cash game players who right. play such a bad short stack. And right. like, it's not until day three or further that you see that. But they're making grave errors. <clears throat> they're overcommitting themselves. They're acting like they have 30 big bets to play with. Mm -hmm. They don't realize they have five, and they make this marginal play mm -hmm. that you know might be slightly profitable, but they're now not going to have enough of a stack to play out the really profitable hand that's coming up. Exactly. God, I, they, yeah, you know, even though you know you 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 you've played a lot more volume than me because you, you come from the online world. Uh, it's exactly what I think, and a lot of times, you know, there's. There's equity spots where maybe you're supposed to call uh, and you you tell yourself, well, you know, there's if I fold here, I can find a much better spots. And, and in tournament poker, it's not like cash games. You don't need to always go, at least this is how I think. And this is where I kind of differ. I don't know if you, if you differ a little bit from the GTO ICM guys is just because it's a – uh, uh, math spot of plus equity doesn't mean you have to take that line. You understand what I'm trying to say? And you could take a different line if you feel like you could get your money in, in better spots or a different spot. And I do that a lot. I think, you know, even where people just trash Phil Hummus game, that's what he does a lot. He is fantastic at playing against bad players and making folds that like equity wise aren't the best folds, but then he'll find a better spot and everybody will be saying, ah, oh, Phil folded this much for this many big blinds. What an idiot. And then all of a sudden you look over and Phil's got 50 big blinds. And is he really that much of an idiot? Cause he, he finds, he puts himself in different spots. Now, you know, we, we all know Phil is full of himself and he think, you know, he thinks he's, about miles better than he is. Uh, it's I, I bring it up because uh, you know I got I did an interview with him last night that uh, I'll be releasing uh, next week or the week after, and we were talking, and I said, you know, we're and he was by the way he respects you a lot. He said we know we were talking. I said, listen, you know, say what you want about Sean, he's one of the best five all around tournament players in the world. There is there's not a doubt about it, and uh, you know he he agreed uh, top five or whatever because I 
it, it was funny. I put, I said, I said, I don't care what anyone says. I said, it's hard to argue that there's a better all around tournament player in every game beside Sean Deeb. And of course, you know, his ego, he's like, Oh, I mean, he's top five for sure. But to say he's the best, yeah, yeah that's Phil being Phil, you know what I'm saying? And that the thing is, is in the poker world, you have that respect. People, there's a lot, a lot of people say, Sean's the biggest asshole. Sean's a piece of shit. Sean's, you know, whatever. If, even if you are an asshole, right, or whatever, and you admit it, you say, hey, fuck it, I don't give a shit. I'm an asshole. You know, I tell it like it is. But I say it no matter what you say about Sean Deep, you must respect his poker game. He's great at all the games. And there's just not many people that I could say that about. Um, I mean, even Brian Rast. I mean, there used to be, do you remember the days where we would chase Brian Rast in the mixed games around and he was just awful? I mean, no. Is he still one of the top mixed games? I, I think oh, he's become one of them. I, I love the way he plays, you know, but there we also have a situation of playing cash, big cash games and then having a, to come over to the tournaments and, and try and do well. And uh, he's, he's playing tournaments where the big blind, his big bet when he's playing 5 and 10K all summer mm-hmm. is the buy into the highest tournament. So, right. Like, it's tough for him to take it seriously, but I, if he ever needed to grind, if he ever was somehow short on money, he'd be one of the people I would take, you know, Absolutely. who I wouldn't want to bet against in tournaments because he can win any tournament. He can, you know, play against the best players. He can play against the worst players. But, like, that's the thing is there's so many people who could be as good as me at tournaments right. who are smart enough to, you know, and year-round they just play cash. So, like, that's better. Like, John Monet could easily yeah. be there right with me, you know. Yeah. These are showmen. Like, there's so many names who – could easily compete with me. Oh, like, absolutely. If you had to say, if everyone had to play just tournaments, I would not be top five. Right. But thankfully, there's cash games, so you know the top the top minds of poker don't spend year round thinking of tournaments. And you know, with all my online tournament success throughout the years in volume, I know ICM spots and I know final table payouts better than the mixed game crowd. So that's you know what helps me. But I mean, I don't doubt that if they tried for you know three months or six months. They'd be as good, if not better, than me. Right. But thankfully, it's not cost effective for them to do it. So and, I get, you know, get to play against a lower tier player at the World Series, right? You know, at the earlier levels, these guys are max late regging because it's most profitable for them to play cash on day one of the tournament, like Gordo, for example. Right, right. And, you know, Mercy, like all these guys would be there, right there with me, battling every day if they had to. But you know, there's. They don't do it, so it's Vol- nice. Even, even Volpe. I mean, we we know yeah. how great Volpe plays every game. He's he's one of my top five. And uh, now he he you know once you grind a tournaments a long time and you got a lot of money and you're able to play in the big cash games where you are as good if not better than people, it's tough to be a tournament player. And I uh, and he ended up playing a lot of cash this summer, and then he also ended up playing a lot of tournaments towards the end of the year. Uh, but like we've talked about already, it's it's not it's just not easy to do when you're playing nosebleed cash games. And like even John Monet, right? I originally texted him the day before the World Series. I said, "Are you going to be playing a lot of tournaments?" You know, because I was going to draft him on my, uh, you know, I, I only I didn't play twenty five k draft, but I I did. You know, Mark Gregor, it's just two point five and. Uh, I think one in Baker's uh, uh, fantasy, and I said, "Are you?" He says, "Oh, I'm going to play at least half the 10Ks, and that's about it." And all of a sudden, I'm looking, and he's playing every tournament. I'm like, "I thought you weren't going to be playing any tournaments." He's like, "Well, they beat me for 250,000 for the fourth consecutive day, and I've had enough." Well, there you go. There's our point in in in, in what we've been talking about is. 
here he you know when you're playing it, you know we're talking a lot 250,000 wow who loses to you know these guys are playing 36,000 you know what i mean and uh it's it's not it's kind of like when you're playing 3600 uh 25,000 is nothing, you know what I'm saying? And uh, when you go and you lose, when you start off and you're playing these guys and you're losing like that, now you got to grind in a tournament. It's just that he had, he had very poor results in tournaments this year, and uh, that, that had a lot to do with it. I mean, it's just, you get stuck a million dollars playing cash games, and now you're jumping in a tournament where 400,000 up top, and, and all of a sudden you play for two and a half days and you finish uh, 13th and get... Fourteen thousand, and you profited four thousand. Uh, that's that's a tough blow. You know what I'm saying? You're like, yeah. you know, you're you're deep in a tournament. You you, you pick up four thousand, but you you've lost a million dollars over the uh, over the last uh, four days. What are you guys laughing about over there? Sean's taking a long piss. Oh, oh, that's funny. Well, that's my boy Sean. Yeah, you guys are funny. <laughs> He goes, Sean, Sean's taking a nice piss, and I'm starting to laugh. I'm not, me, I'm, I'm trying oh, to. Oh, I was holding up some water. That, that oh, you <laughs> That's pretty funny. Going and going. Yeah, oh, he's filling up the water. Like, man, he, yeah, sure. he keeps going and going, man. This is a hell of a long I, I I Usually when I have an interview where I know it's going to go long, I usually have a couple of water waiting with me. Yeah. This time I didn't, so I was like, all right, getting a little dry so let me go get some water oh yeah yeah can you grab me and i'd be nice enough to at least mute the phone if i was going pee come on guys i know i've done this before <laughs> that's pretty funny so um you uh like i said uh you had a great world series um you uh are in position for a possible unprecedented uh player of the year in back-to-back years which i think would be I, I know it would be an achievement that is uh, people talk about for a long time. So I know you really want it. Uh, you plan on going out to WSOP Europe. I know that. Uh, yeah. And uh, I was not going to go, uh, but they added those two eight games in there. And now I'm uh, on the fence, maybe 50 50 of going. Uh, that makes, uh, you know, just such a big difference. Uh, they, it's, uh, yeah, that really affects my player of the year equity because now uh, Huey and Dan Zach are going to go most likely. You know, they're you know Dan Zach's a great player, Huey's also a great player. Right. You know, but they enjoy mix more than no limit. They're both great at no limit, right? But you know, that's not the game they prefer. Right. And so now it's going to make it a five horse race out there. So it hurts my chance of going back to back a lot more. Wow. But, See, you know, I was I thinking think... opposite. I was thinking it helped you out a lot more. But now, uh, the more I think about it, uh, you're right. If Yui and uh, Dan Zacko, but do they, they're pretty, are they, who's the top five right now? You got. Uh, it's, and, it's Robert Campbell first, who's going to go, but he wasn't going to play the big no limit. Right. It's me. And I think I was actually, I'm probably going to put out a tweet and actually sell for. Some of the higher binds, the 25k short deck, 25k no limit, and 100k right. no limit. And if I get some time away from kids, I'm going to study short deck the best I can right. um, before I go there because that's one of the games I have the least amount of experience in. Yeah, and the equities are very different. It's a you know it's a unique structured game, which for anyone who knows me, you know, or doesn't know me that well, whenever a new game comes out, I usually tend to be one of the better people. Whether it was open phase, right. whether it's you know a goofy new game that we invent. And that's kind of always been my MO is the new games that come out, I become very good at very fast. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely, it's one of the side effects of having a family is, you know, when short deck became popular, I would have loved to, you know, go play the big short deck games and the big short deck tournaments before anyone else has because 
the first day, I think I would, you know, learn at a faster rate than almost anybody. Mm-hmm. So if I played the first couple of weeks, the first couple of months, it was popular in tournaments. Mm-hmm. I think I, you know, would be levels ahead of everybody. Right. But you know, I kind of the curve passed me because I wasn't able to put in the volume like I usually do. So that's kind of going to be my focus for the next month or two is to really study short deck, figure it out. You know, find you a place th- to play some short deck cash somewhere online, and go from there. Do you think short deck no limit is going to? To, to take on and become popular. I think it is. Most people I talk to say no. Um, the reason why I'm I think... i you a two-way answer. Um, okay. I think it will be very popular for cash. I think it will be very unpopular for tournaments. Okay. Once people actually feel, realize the equities on the bubble, the big stack can just go all in dark every hand and no one can call. Right. And they pick up too many trips and too many annies. So... Right. Because no one can call, like it's kind of like a, the old school sitting goes. Like the chip leader can just shove every hand, and no one calls, and they just win the tournament ninety five percent of the time, right. unless someone wakes up with aces three times in a row. Right. So because of that, that once people at the big stack start realizing how to wield the big stack in that game mm-hmm. in a tournament, people are gonna realize what a bad tournament game is. It's you know, it's just like no limit Omaha, no limit right. 08. Like if you're it's all twenty blinds affected, it's fold you in the cutoff, and you have you know some four shit cards right. you can shove because they just can't call enough. And when they do call, you still have 35 to 40% equity. Yeah. Well, yeah, and they so can't, they can't call with 60% equity. They can't because, call. You know, they're going to bust too often. Yeah. And the thing is they can't call. I mean, even like when you move in and, and that's a good point is most people who move in and no limit. Oh, eight is like they have aces. Right. And if somebody's moving in in front of you, like other raise all in, right. If you don't think they have aces or raise call and then, you move all in. You know the raise, raise with like an ace, deuce, or whatever, a call, and, and now all of a sudden you just ship it. I mean, is somebody really, they have to call an all in with uh, like what, a, a piece of shit ace, deuce, with, and they think you have aces. So you're, it's very tough to call within no limit 08 if in certain situations, which I, is why I think it's a, a terrible cash game. Uh, it, it might be a better no, uh, tournament game, but I don't know. We've never seen it. Uh, so, I, yeah, I definitely uh, agree with what you're saying there. Uh, the short deck, I, was, I didn't know how it was going to be because I just figured you're going to see there's going to be a lot more hands, a lot more played post-flop because uh, you have so many more hands to play, and it would be more of an interesting tournament game to watch on TV. And uh, But I have not played it, so I have no idea, and you're saying no, it wouldn't Yeah, I, I do think you're right about this. I think that's a great game for TV because there's going to be more action, more hands. There's right. going to be more multi-way pots, you know. But it's but, so confusing math for people. And, like, I think there's a couple intricacies of the game where it's, it has a lot of Omaha-esque things where, like, you know, you, you you want to be the first person to call an all-in with ace or kings or ace-king suited, and the third guy all-in wants to have jack-10 suited or nine ten suited. You know, right. it's it's so goofy that, like, you don't want to be the third guy all-in with aces because, like, your equity is not that good against, you know, two suited connectors. No, no, in, in, in the short day, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Exactly. It's just like, you know, they were taught, uh, uh, there's a, there's, Phil was telling me about this tournament coming out where uh, that he invested a little bit of money in where, there's going to be like a hundred thousand people uh, in a tournament, uh, and you each player has to play the first two hand, one of the first two hands dealt. Okay, so that takes two minutes. Now you're down to ten thousand players. Then you have to play one of the next onto on the next round to the 
uh, yeah, the first two hands dealt. Now you're down to a thousand. Anyway, the tournament's over in 12 minutes. And, uh, the, the, you know, there's, it's a company, whatever, where they're going to be giving away like free rolls and, you know, people who are advertised real big with a certain, uh, event, you know, if you win that thing, you'll get free rolls into like, you know, big money tournaments, whatever. And I thought it was somewhat of a good idea, but I said, but that's, there's no poker in that. That's just like, uh, it's an all in our fold. It's you're flipping to get a seat. Well, which is basically a lottery, which is great for 99% of the people, but not great for, you know, you and I and right. other top guys. Right. And and so I, I'm like, well, you know, how's that going to work? And how good can that be for poker? Like, so if you have to play one of the first two hands, like, let's just say the first hand or even the second hand, you pick up two aces and you're all in. Well, well there's six other people that have to go all in with you there. And and equity wise, you you got like, 24% against seven other players with two aces, probably. I don't know. Maybe less. Who the, I mean, how many times you ever won with two aces in a seven-way action pot? Not often, yeah. right? You know, so uh, that that in itself is pretty, pretty interesting. Flash, be quiet, you old man. My cat, 18 years old. He runs around like he's a kitten and he wants attention all the time. Shh. Shh. I'm sure your girlfriend can say the same thing about you. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> you had to open up the can of worms while she's <laughs> while she's over here listening and everything. So uh, yeah, so um, very few people. I'm going to ask one more thing, and then we'll go to the the questions that we had some people go on. I have said this many times. Uh, very few people. You could probably count them. On one hand, maybe two hands, two hands at the most, started off in the online world. Our, Flash, shut up. Uh, started off in the online world and are able to make an adjustment to cash games and the live world. Um, the, to me, the games are completely different. What was your adjustment? What do you feel is is so different and the adjustments you had to make going from an online grinder to a cash game grinder or to a live game grinder? Um, I mean, the biggest adjustment that was easy to me was actually knowing who people were. I know this is a six-year-old guy with a wife and grandkids, you know, or some 22-year-old German, you know. Right. Online, it was just a name and a location. You had no idea about age, you know, how they dress. You know, there's so much information that you see when you join a table you're like, how do they move their chips? You know, all these simple things that you're, you don't even think about now because you've been playing for so many years. But right. I was very good at adjusting that, and I'm very friendly, and I chat with people. So I, oh, this is your first tournament you ever played. Oh, you play here. You know, oh, this is who you're friends with. You know, mm-hmm. I'm always paying attention to who they talk to on break. You know, in the right. close of this kid who I didn't know anything about the final table, he sit there talking to Sergio Adio or whatever, mm-hmm. Adio, I don't know how I'm saying, mm-hmm. who's like one of the best players in the world. So I'm like, he's friends with him. All right, I'm going to give him credit, you know, right. for – being this level of play just because he's talking to him. You know, I know he doesn't associate with, like, this kid's too young to just be a fish. Right. So he clearly has to be a great player. Right. And, you know, that's actually the guy who I lost flip to is because I played my hand versus him, knowing who he's friends with and knowing he'd play X number of hands probably this way mm-hmm. in the situation. Right. And, you know, that was something that was easy for me because, of like, I'm talkative, sociable, you know, I'm not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, silent kid. But I think a lot of people struggled because a lot of the online crowd were 
antisocial, you know, yeah. part autistic, you know, and you, it's you not their right fault. The, They're yep. savants at what they do, but they can't associate with people and communicate well and get that extra information. Like I could tell you a hundred hands I played this summer where someone made a comment or showed a fold and I immediately, you know, took advantage of that two hands later because I was able to extrapolate that information that they gave away exactly. that they're willing to raise fold that hand to this because they just like, they would only play aces like that. So therefore I'm going to play my bluffs like that and make them fold. Right. And, I, and this is one of the problems that I tell, I try and tell how youth all the time. You know, we're good friends. I'm like, Phil, you love to raise, get three bet, and then show some big lay down to them. I'm like, that's the absolute worst thing you could ever do. The only time you want to show cards is when you have it. You know, you don't want to show big. I'll never, ever show a big fold, you know. And you, you want always want them to think, you know, put it in their mind. Oh, Mike's tight. Every time he shows a hand, he has it. That's where you want to be. That's going to allow you to exploit them later on. Where, you know, if you're showing people big folds, they're going to fucking exploit you, you know. And I'm not, you know, luckily Phil doesn't listen to all my podcasts, so he'll never hear this. And there's uh, a lot of times, listen, me and Phil talk a lot. I, I try, I've helped him out a lot in the mixed games because... He's helped me out a lot when things have been bad for me and not many people have. And I respect him for that. And, and people don't understand Phil. He's deep down inside. He's a good hearted person. He cares, you know, he's, he's just, one of the best people to be friends with in poker. And, absolutely. you know, my wife was lucky to meet him early on in a relationship and Phil said great things about me. And we had, right. we, we referenced so many Phil Hummies quotes and so many Phil Hummies lines, right. every single month of our marriage. Like he's an integral part of why we're together. And, you know, <laughs> and, and he's just, He's always been, you know, he's always there. Like, I can, we, you know, and I know, we can call him at any point and talk to him for an hour about anything on our mind. And he'll give you his opinion. Yeah. And his opinion's always, like, well thought out. He's a very intelligent person. Right. And, you know, obviously he's an emotional person, but all of us are. You can't be a great poker player and not be emotional because emotions drive you to work harder, to grind harder, and to, you know, make good decisions. Like, because if, you, if you're emotionless, you're just going to fucking say, fuck it and don't care and flick it in all the time. But if you actually care about each and every chip and each and every decision, you're going to put so much more effort and make so many better plays because, right. you know, you're giving it 110%. Right. And that, you know, that's what that's what Phil does. And that's what you do. That's what I do. That's what Daniel does. Uh, that's what uh, uh, when Mercier was playing tournaments and Volpe playing tournaments, that's what they do. And, and you know, listen, when you get and another reason I uh, respect you so much is once you develop and get yourself a good bankroll, and even though you have two kids and a wife, you know, and you always are out there working hard, but once, you know, once people get, you know, a couple million dollars or whatever, it's, and they're playing bigger cash games, it's so easy to deviate from what got you there. Like, where, what made you all the money? And, how good are you in certain tournaments? And so many people, once they get pumped up, whatever, they start to, to bleed more over to the bigger cash games, which is probably the right thing to do. But as like we talked about, you know, it's not easy to play cash all day and night and then come and play tournaments. And you're 100%, then even the people you named, I, I, they're, they're just gr they're great players. And you're right. If John, I, I, there's certain people in the poker world, and I've said this many times, and I have no problem saying it. There's times in my life, uh, pre-2006, uh, no matter what card room I walked into, I 
whoever I played against, I thought I was the best player. And then I'd put certain people above me. I would put like Johnny World, uh, uh, David Oppenheim. Um, uh, even when before David uh, Benjamin blew all his money into the pit and and owed the whole world and then became a, you know, somebody that just leeches and gets new backers all the time. But he used to be a absolutely fantastic poker player but he had a leak you know he'd get stuck he'd go in the pit he, and the next thing you know uh he doesn't understand why he's losing it's it's, just, it's such a, a, a interesting dynamic of who the best players are like you, you said earlier it's such a misconception of who the best players are it's it, it's a fucking joke you know and uh and there's also like so much to be said of like Someone names your name. If they're ever at your tournament in day three, mm-hmm. you should be fucking scared. But if they're at your table day one, you know, they're not they're not taking it that seriously. You know, I've always had the thing when it comes to poker is online I played the small stakes and the high stakes every single day. Right. So I don't mind grinding. Like I'm I'm not I I don't see it as an insult. I, I respect people who drop down in stakes mm-hmm. and you know, just because 'cause I'm well off, I don't think I'm above you know, playing the five hundred dollar no limits, the fifteen hundred mix. I'm gonna play every buy in available. Right. Because I know what my equity is, and I know that you know I'm going to make money. Yeah, you know it sucks, you know, to win a tournament that's only 100k up top or 40k or 12k. You know what I mean? Because you're like, ah, shit, I should have done this when it was 1.5 up top. Mm-hmm. But you know, throughout the years, I I went so long without a massive score in poker. Mm-hmm. You know, I grinded so many like 50 to 70k scores, which mm-hmm. you know some people listening say, oh, it's such a massive score. But like the stakes I was playing, I played every 5k and 10k and 25k right. live for years and I was down probably a million or two million dollars in live tournaments and I was still confident I was profitable right. because I knew I could beat these games I knew that every time I was at a final table you know shit would go bad but I didn't let it fuck with me to just give up on tournaments I stuck with it and you know I've put up consistent year after year results because of that because I knew that I was better than my results were right and I was you know I didn't let it affect me I didn't say like oh I run so bad like I'm I, I, you know, you've known me for years. How often am I sitting there complaining about how bad I run? Never. And, you know, never. and, and I always said, like, I, there's so many times in my career that I should have went broke. And I mm-hmm. said, like, I've run further above expectation than almost anyone. When you look time and time again, right. because I was a DJ when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20. Yeah. I did do a bunch of dumb shit and I did just waste my money. You know, wow. now I've matured and I've gotten better with that. But, you know, I, I at least was aware that I was doing bad things then. Yeah. And, you know, I was aware of leaks, and so many people are not aware of them, and they just convince themselves it's something else. Correct. And, you know, I, I, I could, I could uh, kind of relate what you just said is, you know, I grinded my whole life. Let's say I started in 96 um, through 2005 where I was – me and a handful of people were just – so much especially even in tournaments we're so much farther way in front of everybody else that it was easy to just show up and make money and once you realize that hey uh people are getting have gotten good you need to watch people's tendencies but once poker became tougher you have to respect your opponents and one of the biggest things i had for a long time is like what you're kind of relating to is I would walk in there and, you know, with I, I, I'm the best on this, 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 and all of a sudden you start losing and poker will humble anybody. And, and if you have not been humbled yet in poker, you will. And 
once you if you get humbled and you don't make adjustments and let's just say build off of it you know what's the difference of insanity doing the same thing over and over and over now unfortunately for me i did that way too long because i had worked so hard to get myself involved with full tilt you know poker didn't just build overnight we you know it started off uh, with like 25 of us playing a world poker tour event you know we had to go from tournament to place to place and 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 we we worked hard to build that that's why it hurt so bad what happened with the full tilt because so many of us put in so many hours to build the company to put us in position where we don't have to grind every day and uh, when bad things happen with that and I realized that I had to go back to playing poker full time it was a shock to my system it's like what the the fuck I gotta go back and start grinding every day and I'm not gonna lie it took me probably uh at least a year after Black Friday to come to the realization that there's no more full tilt money there you're you got to start over and it's it's a shock to your system when you work so hard to never have to work again and like we talk about you doing stupid things when you were younger well I did stupid things in the early 2000s but worked really hard in poker and now all of a sudden i I find myself where i got to go back grinding every day and it was it was a shock to my system and it was hard i've made that adjustment now i've learned from my mistakes i've gone broke nine times uh people say like to laugh at me and say come on mike only nine uh <laughs> but but uh you know and uh the misconception well, some of the times you were negative had a big score and were still negative so that only comes as one yeah That's why I'm confused. well people don't seem to understand like, i have no problems of admitting even when i was making big money in full tilt i never had money because i knew i was ha- i had that income i had i had a lot of uh other endorsement incomes so I spooed in the sports. I spooed in well, a lot of times, even when I, if I didn't play four and 800, if there was a two, 400 game going, it was like playing so small. I dust off 20,000 and play bad. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and that happened to me. And, and lo- unfortunately it took a lot longer to realize, guess what? My, the full tilt money, the full tilt's not coming back. The only way you're going to get back on your feet is working. And, you know, now I, I, and then it sucked when I got sick because that, you know, that I was in pain every day for four years and you could tell you, I mean, you've seen me many a times, the difference between, even though I had two great world series in a row, the difference this year going to last year and the year before, how much I was able to move, get up out of the chair, move, come to your table, talk yeah, to you. You didn't have the fatigue that you had. Exactly. And, uh, and, and, and being able to play where you're not just, in pain every day is you know i don't even know it was like listen i'm still gonna have ted i'm stuck with this little bit of pain the rest of my life no matter what but to have like 80 85 relief from where i was for the last four years allowed me to to just stay in that positive mindset where i'm like i'm not in pain i know i'm playing good where before it was it was even even though i did it the last two years uh before it was like oh uh, the first two years after my operation was like oh man i'm like i'm in so much pain and then mentally i'd break down misplay hands and that's why you'd find myself 
going to day twos and not making it through day twos. And then the next thing you know, when I figured it out two years ago, I was like, you know, stop, you know, you have to fight through the pain. And so it's a lot, it was a lot harder for me fighting through the pain and showing up at the World Series every day than it, it was this year. And that's why even when I, you only heard one negative thing out of me this year, and that was going into the last week of the World Series, and you lifted me up, and I've credited you to it. You said, Mike, stud eight or better tomorrow. It's one of your best events. You're going to do good there. You got the main event, and you've got uh, the horse turn. You got other tournaments coming up. It's not over yet. And you know what? I went to sleep that night. I said, Sean's right. I go, I go, don't get down. It's been tough, and uh, and it pays off. It paid off. And that is the toughest thing, uh, you know, that we have to at the World Series is is getting up every day when things go bad, and and knowing that you have to go do it again. The mouthpiece. I hope you enjoyed our show today with a great interview with. Sean Deeb. Thanks for listening to part one and join us tomorrow for part two of The Mouthpiece. The Mouthpiece.